Let's go ahead and open to 1 Timothy chapter 4, where we're going to pick up at verse number 7. That's actually where we closed last time. Uh, we are looking at this letter that Paul writes, I believe, somewhere after the middle part, after the summer of uh, 63. He's uh, finished with his Roman detention. He's already been in front of Nero Caesar and found innocent of these trumped-up charges from four years earlier. Uh, he didn't get a chance. He had the chance, but he didn't get uh, to actually convert Nero. Nero had free will and uh, never apparently embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior. Uh, but Paul is now kind of uh, catching up uh, in doing some visitation mentioned in the letters he wrote uh, during the time he was at Rome. So he's dropped Titus off at Crete. Uh, he will soon be writing a letter to him. Uh, he dropped uh, Timothy off at Ephesus, and he's writing a letter to him now. Uh, he probably popped over real quick to Colossae, uh, checked in on things over there as a follow-up to the book of Philemon and the book of Colossians. Uh, but he's now headed off into Macedonia, no doubt, to visit the people at Philippi, as he told them that he would. Uh, and he writes this letter back to Timothy to encourage him to really get this job done that he was left there to take care of, uh, which included the idea of making sure the leadership uh, is solid and stable, and uh, make sure that you yourself stay on topic, stay on track with the Word of God. And that is where we begin with verse 7 of chapter 4. Have nothing to do with irreverent, so things that are not on track with God's way of doing things. Silly, which is an interesting word. Uh, you know, when I grew up, uh, we would refer to uh, things uh, known as old wives' tales. Uh, and it would be just goofy things that people used to believe uh, that weren't true. Uh, but they were still talked about. And I even had uh, my own great-grandmother that I spent time with as a, as a teenager telling me things that I knew for a fact were not accurate but she swore up and down that they were true. Uh, so these are the sort of things that are represented by this word, is wives' tales, old wives' tales, uh, things generated not just simply by older ladies, but by people who for a long time believed them despite the fact they weren't true. So Paul, uh, Paul says to him, have nothing to do with these irreverent, silly myths. Uh, the word myth has to do with fiction, uh, not true. Uh, when we hear the word myth, typically we think of, you know, the stories of Hercules, the stories about Zeus and Apollo and all of that. Well, those are fictional stories, uh, and uh, they definitely would fall into the category here. But, you know, there are such fictions amongst the Jewish people as well. Uh, there are some fictional uh, books uh, and stories uh, within Judaism that, that won't be found in the Bible and can't be found in uh, history. 
but uh, a lot of times they swear up and down uh, that they are true. And so Paul says, don't get sucked into that stuff, Timothy. Rather, so this is a contrasting word here, instead of doing that, train yourself for godliness. Uh, Now, the idea of training uh, in the context of the first century uh, would often bring up pictures of people training for athletic competitions where they would really work out hard, uh, go to great lengths to make sure that they could compete with excellence. Uh, And gymnasiums would kind of come into that play. And so that's kind of what Paul is uh, using as a metaphor here, is put your spiritual life to work at the gym, uh, God's gym, if you will, uh, and get yourself fit in God's way of doing things. Uh, Verse 8, for while bodily training is of some value, and that is true. You know, I, um, I had some health issues uh, in the last decade or two that were generated by the fact that I was not as active as I needed to be. And so I've tried to reverse some of that, and I get out and try to walk about five miles every day and uh, make sure that I do physical uh, exercises, and I feel better for it. Uh, And I hear that from other people. Paul says, hey, that's good. Uh, That is beneficial. That's true. But godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. And so that is true. Uh, I can try to stay physically fit, but as I age... My physical fitness is not going to make me live forever. This body is on its way down. Uh, It's on its way out. And that's all because of the curse uh, that sin brought into this world uh, many thousands of years ago. So my physical fitness is good for now, but it's not going to help for later. The fitness of Scripture, though, the godliness exercises that we engage in, that helps us out now, and it will definitely help us out later because it will secure this relationship with Jesus into eternity. Verse number nine, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And I think that's a reference to what he just said, that godliness is good for now and for later, so engage in it. Verse 10, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Now, every time we see the word hope in the New Testament, you should immediately think, of the bodily resurrection of the righteous at the time of Jesus' second coming. Uh, When the trumpet call is sounded, the dead in Christ will rise, the living in Christ will be transformed, and we'll be all caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. That's our hope. That's the blessed hope. And so we have that hope set 
on the living God, uh, a book that will be written, you know, decade or two after this one. Uh, the Apostle John will say, everyone who has their hope set on this, that is the second coming of Jesus, will purify himself even as he, Jesus, is pure. So this is the reason we all put the extra effort into our Christian lifestyle, why we do our Bible studies and our uh, coming together to the church in order to uh, soak up the word and to be encouraged to love and good deeds and to encourage others to love and good deeds and to worship together and fellowship together and serve together. We do all of this so that we will be spiritually healthy and be part of that second coming experience uh, when we will move into the last and eternal state of our lives. And it's all thanks to Jesus. I mean, he is the one who, being God, came and died and rose again to bring us into his presence for eternity. He is the Savior of all of us who have already named the name, and not just for us. You know, there's a whole bunch of people out there right now, you know some of them, that they don't have Jesus as their Savior. They don't have him as their Lord right now. But they will, they can, and so we need to remember not to be selfish with what we already have. Make sure that we're always ready to share Jesus uh, as a, a Savior with others. Verse 11, command and teach these things. So remember, he's writing to a singular person, Timothy. We're kind of reading Timothy's mail here, uh, thanks to the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and Timothy's responsibility at Ephesus and beyond is to command and to teach the things of God. And Paul says, stay on top of that. Uh, in the next letter, which will be the last letter that Paul writes uh, and to Timothy and to anyone, uh, he will say, preach the word. You know, be ready in season, out of season. You know, whether, whether you know, it's a scheduled event or an impromptu situation. Just always be ready to preach the word, God's inspired word, uh, because that's the responsibility of a preacher. Uh, from time to time, I like to talk to those of you that I know are preachers and teachers. Uh, make sure that you keep the teaching of the word as your primary job. That's our responsibility, guys. It is our responsibility to study God's Word, to digest it, to understand it ourselves and apply it to our own lives, but then to be able to turn around and pass that on intact to people that need it. So command and teach these things. That's Timothy's commission. Verse 12, let no one despise you or look down on you for your youth. Now, when Timothy is receiving this letter, 
My best guess is he's in his 30s, because I assume that when Paul uh, started taking him along on the second missionary journey, uh, that Timothy was probably in his upper teens, and that happened uh, back in about 48 or so. And so this is probably 63 that he's writing this, so that puts Timothy uh, probably in his 30s. for in the Jewish culture of this time period, that was still pretty young. Uh, this word, youth, could be applied to anyone from, you know, toddlerhood up through their 30s. Uh, the fact of the matter is, I'm in my early 60s, I'm 63, and I still have people that treat me as if I am a youth because they're up in their 80s and 90s. Uh, And so that is tough when you're a preacher, uh, where people maybe don't take you as seriously. I I have to joke, you know, anytime I have ever gone back to my hometown, Kabul, Missouri, um, if I get the opportunity, I preach. And uh, I try to do my best and try to present the Word of God as I always do. Uh, but inevitably, <laughs> I will run across people that used to teach me uh, or used to be my babysitter or used to have actually heard these words. Oh, I used to change your diaper, you know, that sort of thing. It is hard to be taken seriously by some of the people that are in that category. And I think that might be where Timothy's at here uh, is Paul says, Don't let people get you down on that. Don't let them despise you because of your youth. But do this. You know, take care of this business. Set the believers an example. So show them what a Christian life is all about. So set them an example in speech. So what you say. You know, control what you verbalize. So in your speech... In your conduct, you know, set a good example in the way that you interact with people, Uh, people at the church, people outside the church. You know, make sure that you you demonstrate Jesus in these people's lives. Uh, You might remember that Paul writes, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And so one of the responsibilities of us preachers is, is to set an example for the people underneath our our teaching within our sphere of influence to follow. So set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love. No, that's the agape love, uh, the love that is self-sacrificing, the love that looks out for the other person, the, the love that does whatever is needful for that other person, regardless of what it might count or what it might cost us when we're carrying that out. So set that type of example, preacher, in faith, you know, in not just simply the belief in the gospel, but the trusting of God. You know, we we who preach and teach have to live the Christian lifestyle, including trusting God in the most difficult circumstances, because we need we need people to see us as an example. You know, I, I've heard stories, and I've 
had similar experiences, but I'm going to tell you a story about a particular preacher that was on a, um, he was in a big congregation, and he was on the radio, he was in television locally, and uh, somebody cut in line at the store in front of him and looked back at him, and he's like, whatever. And then when he got finally through the line, got outside, that person came up to him and said, I know who you are. And I cut in front of you on purpose because I wanted to see if you practiced what you preached. <laughs> now, that, that, folks, is definitely something we preachers need to take in consideration. Everywhere we go, everything that we do, we need to be trying to set the example of what we've been preaching. And impurity. You know, living the way God wants to live, staying away from sinful circumstances and situations. Timothy needs to have that sort of lifestyle. All preachers do. Verse 13, until I come, and again, Paul is assuming at this point that he's going to pop back to Ephesus. I actually believe, and I don't think it's a really big point uh, to debate about, but I actually believe he will he will shortly change his itinerary intentions. And instead of coming back to Ephesus, I think he's going to cut across uh, western Macedonia uh, over to Elycrium area and then uh, get to uh, the city of Neapolis. Because in the book of Titus, he tells Titus, come to Neapolis because I've decided I'm going to winter in that city. Uh, but here, as he's writing these, these words, uh, his intention is to come back to Ephesus. So he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Now, that's very important because in the first century, it is 17, excuse me, wrong number, it is basically, we'll call it 14, 15 centuries prior to the invention of the printing press. And so all written documents, which the scriptures are written documents, that's what the word literally means, writings. All written documents have to be hand copied. And that's a pretty big deal. And so you've got 22 scrolls of holy Jewish scripture that the Jewish people accept as inspired. Uh, it's the same as the 39 books of the Old Testament that we know. Uh, just they're packaged slightly differently. Uh, so very few private persons had all of God's scripture in their homes. Uh, but a lot of synagogues did have all 22 scrolls, uh, thanks to the generosity of, of, of wealthy uh, believers. And so effectively, the synagogue was the place where you went to read from the scroll or to hear it read, and that was the most efficient thing, was they would read aloud so that everybody assembled in the room could hear the written word of God. So uh, now the New Testament is being put together. 
uh, during this first century, and that's also going to be hand-copied and passed around and kept uh, in collections. I have no doubt that some of Paul's letters have been collected already into uh, groups. And so Paul is basically saying, Timothy, make sure that you guys there at Ephesus keep reading on a regular basis from the Scripture. Read it publicly. Make sure that it's out there where people can hear it, because that's, that's God's Word. It's inspired, and everybody needs to soak it up. And so that's why I put a, such a, an emphasis here in this programming that we do to get through the entirety of God's inspired Word as often as we can, uh, because we want this public reading of the Scripture. So preachers need to do that. They need to get the Word out, God's Word out. Uh, to exhortation, uh, exhortation has the idea of urging people to do the right thing. Now, it's based on the Scripture. Uh, when we do our sermons, we exhort people to live according to the Scripture. That's, that's the way we do it. So, Timothy, make sure you're reading the Scripture publicly for people. Make sure you're urging them to do it. And to the teaching. Teaching is explanation. It's what I'm doing right now. Uh, and that's where I feel my giftedness is, is to soak up the Word of God for myself, to, to study it and, and understand it. And then I want to turn around and give it to you in a format where you can soak it up and understand it. And, and then we can do the exhorting thing, which you know I do as well, uh, where we apply it and get it done. So this again is Paul, the senior of this partnership, saying, all right, junior, make sure you get out there do God's Word, preach God's Word, exhort about God's Word, teach God's Word, help those people grow in relationship to God. And that's what preachers need to be doing today. If, if your preacher's not doing that, you need to challenge them to get busy with that. And if they won't, you've heard me say this, you need to get out of that church, out of that congregation as fast as your little feet will take you and get to a place where the Word of God has a central um, place in the church life because that's, that's where we get our information. Verse number 14, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Now, that goes way back to when uh, Paul comes to Timothy's home church, his hometown, Timothy becomes uh, a believer in Jesus Christ. He's no doubt immersed into the death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, he has the forgiveness of his sins, but he also has the laying on of Paul the Apostle's hands in the company of the, of the leadership, the spiritual leadership of that church, because Paul is going to take Timothy, you know, as a protege on on the second missionary journey with him. Uh, and so back at that time, apparently there were prophetic utterances made about his giftedness to be an evangelist, to be exactly what Paul is using him as out, 
right now. And so Paul says, don't neglect it. Don't put that thing on the shelf. Make sure you're doing what Jesus said he would gift you to do. And uh, preachers, get it done. If God has gifted you uh, to uh, do work in the church, don't put that on the shelf. Get it done. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. So get it done. Let people see you doing it. Uh, but then this little bit of warning here before we kind of wrap up today. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You know, stay focused, stay orthodox, stay in line with the scripture. Persistentness, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. So we preachers are responsible for keeping ourselves on track because when we preach and teach, we're responsible for keeping other people on track. And so if we get off the track, we end up derailing other people. So encourage your preacher, pray for your preacher, and you preachers, stay in the Word of God and be true to it in how you preach and teach.